The following audio is the third and final part of the series on civil righteousness given by J.T. Thomas at Sunset Community Church. I'm going to say, I can travel now. And I want you to say, God on my traveling shoes. And now say, God on my traveling shoes. So I can travel now, God on my traveling shoes. I can travel now, God on my traveling shoes. Oh, y'all sound good. Okay, let's try. I can travel now, God on my traveling shoes. I can travel now, God on my traveling shoes. So. <clears throat> In the black Negro theology, there's an exodus and an exile paradigm. And most black churches, when they approach scripture, it's as a sojourner that's just traveling through. I'm a stranger in the earth. Heaven is my home and I'm just traveling through. Or exodus, I'm in bondage, coming out of bondage trying to get to the promised land and cross over. So that's how the context, the framework that most black uh, Negro theologians, now there are great African uh, uh, theo theologians in history. So when, it, when uh, some ideologies say that, you know, Christianity is a white man's religion and it was taught to slaves to oppress us, part of that is true, that it was, that it was abused. But uh, Christianity came to the continent of Africa far before uh, colonials did. So uh, that song, though, the song of the Lord is the way we work our way through. In fact, even in Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 48, it says, sing to the Lord a new song. And so the song is one of the things when we get into heavy content and hard stuff, we can sing a song. Sing a song. And so, uh, I can travel now, I can travel now, now look, hold on, wait, wait, run that back, we got to sing on, on beat now, it's, if you can't sing and clap at the same time, I'm not mad, I'm not judging, but it's. I can travel now, God on my traveling shoes. I can travel now, God on my traveling shoes. Can travel now, God on my traveling shoes. I can travel now, my travel. Y'all almost good. We gonna get there. But y'all sound good. <laughs> That's okay. We're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. Y'all sound good. Um, <clears throat> so now on our journey with our traveling shoes on, we're going deeper into the rabbit hole today, into the culture hole. And we're going to answer or attempt to discover the definition of racism. Again, just like justice, there are many definitions in our culture, many different understandings, many things that people, uh, many opinions. But we need to go to the word of the Lord. So... Um, Racism is 
before we can understand the ism, we have to understand the root. Race, according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, is a group of people sharing a common cultural, geographical, linguistic, or religious origin or background. So based off of that definition, race is a group of people sharing a common cultural expression. That means there is a certain commonality that if you are a resident of Renton that you share that I don't share. So technically, according to this, you are a different race. You're the race of Rent Rentonians. <laughs> Geographical, right? Again, same definition, same zip code. What's the zip code here? Oh, who, which one do you live in? Y'all see that? Which one do you live in? Zero five. Who lives? Nine eight zero five six. Who lives in a different one? Which one's better? Which one's the best zip code though? No, I think we need to talk about this. <laughs> Pastor, we got a problem in here. Are you trying to stir something up? I, I, I'm just saying, man. <laughs> Come on, somebody give her, give her, give, give the Lord a hand clap. Of prayer. <laughs> no. See, but do, do you see, according to this definition, how easy it is? to start division, to tribe up, to classify. So race is so fluid. If it can be common culture or geographical or zip code or language or religion, if, if that's what race is, it's fluid, which means it's ever changing. Like dudes got on a Seahawks sweater. Well, I grew up not grew up, but I, I lived in Indianapolis and some of my best friends were Colts. So that's all of a sudden, that's a tribe. Like I could come in here with my Colts on and see the Seahawks and I'm like, I like, I like everything about you, but. <laughs> you know, and I mean, it, seem, it seems kind of funny and you know, it's like, but there are people where sports is their religion. They live for football season, and they ain't in the, in the church on Sunday. That's church. And these athletes are their gods, and they will die for it. I mean, it sounds crazy, but it's true. So race is a social construct. Race is not a fixed reality. It's a fake reality, according to our understanding. And Satan preys on lies. He's the author of the devil is a liar. So he builds constructs on lies and makes us believe and hold deeply true things that we think are true, but it's all the whole framework is a lie. Does that make sense? In other words, from heaven's perspective, well, I won't get ahead of myself. There's only one race. Actually, there are two races. There's the first Adam, born of man in the, sin, in the flesh, in sinful nature, 
And then there's the race of the born again. Christ, a new humanity, it's aliens. It's, it's so weird. It's Christ in humanity, Christian, Christ in human. A new creation is Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ in me, the hope of glory. That's wild. Now, does that get rid of ethnicity? No. Does that get rid of culture? Of, 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 uh, anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Don't, let me stay on the slides. So, now that we've established that, racism is empowered resistance to and hatred for the beauty of Jesus. Racism is empowered resistance to and hatred for the beauty of Jesus. Empowered. It is impossible to be racist unless you hold power. That doesn't mean you cannot be prejudiced or biased. In fact, there is no human who is not biased or who does not have biases, who does not have prejudices or systems of thought that are derived from our, our, our nature or our environment, both our human nature and what has been nurtured, what has been cultivated based on where we were, were born and how we were raised to think and believe certain things. However, racism is the rejection of Jesus within humanity which is the primary manifestation of the spirit of the Antichrist. I told you we're going to go deep. Everybody say, go deep. Look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, we're going deep. Now, you just ate too, so that means you want to go to sleep. Say, neighbor, not to sleep, but deep. Okay. The rejection of Jesus within humanity is the primary manifestation of the spirit of the Antichrist. Racism says, I hate what Jesus looks like in your skin or your cultural expression. Because the Bible says, let us make man in our image. We are image bearers. There is a unique display an expression of Jesus contained within the skin and the culture of every people group on the, world, on the earth and even all of creation. The Bible says all of creation declares his glory. The grass right now, you look at it and it's actually speaking of God's glory, the sky. That's why you have people who will worship nature. Because they are having some sort of encounter with the divine. They just don't know that it's Jesus. So they worship the wrong thing, right? But, they, but it's speaking. It's funny how trees don't, the limbs might grow sideways, but in general, trees aren't growing down. Grass doesn't grow down. You don't have to like dig to cut your grass. It's because it's reaching and it's pointing. It's going up, right? It's declaring God's glory. So does every culture uniquely declare the glory of God. And so this is how we know 
the Spirit of God, John, 1 John says. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh, everybody say in the flesh, is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is already in the world. For some of us, we've only thought of the Antichrist when we think of like the rapture or the like. No, the, the Antichrist is already in the world. And this isn't just talking about you deny that Jesus came as a, as a baby and lived as a man and died on the cross and rose again. That's not, he's saying, if you deny that God, that Jesus has been our incarnated in the flesh, any flesh. Do you know that one reason why slavery was justified is because they said it is impossible for people of Af Africans, it's, it's impossible for Africans to possess the divine nature. So they said, you are, you're not humans. Th these aren't humans. God would not incarnate he would not put his image in these savage beasts. That, that was the, the thought behind the approach to natives and Africans. And other cultures. That's like Aryan thought. So that's called the spirit of the Antichrist. So if you try to fight racism without knowing that you're messing with the Antichrist, do you think you're going to win? This is spiritual. No one has seen God at any time. It goes on to say, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfect in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen, everybody, have see, everybody say seen. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him, and he is God, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us, for God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. This is how he's telling. You can say you're a follower of Jesus, you can say you're a Christian, but he says, Actually, you can say that all day, but here's the test as to, to, to know whether or not you actually are. This is how you know whether or not you actually are a Christian. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does, who does not love his brother, who he can see. How can he love God who he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Why is, why is everybody making a big deal about racism? This is not real. We need to preach the gospel. Do you know who's making the issue? God. He's saying, You've worshipped me in your separate houses of worship. You've lived in your separate communities. You've done all this stuff and called yourself mine.
but I'm going to actually put a litmus test on the earth for the last days, church, the church that I'm coming back for. You're not going to be able to play those games because I'm coming back for a unified, spotless, mature bride that as the world is getting more and more divided, they're going to walk into John 17 oneness and a unity like never before. So what I'm going to do is allow everything that reveals what's really in your heart and who you're really serving, I'm going to allow all that stuff to happen. And then if you're able to love the people that the world tells you not to love when you have no reason to love other than a supernatural godly love, then you'll know whether or not you're a Christian. So in other words, there are people, there are pastors right now who have no interest in this conversation and according to this, God might even be saying, you think you're saved and you're actually not. This is, the wheat. This is where he separates the sheep from the goats and the wheat from the chaff. If you love, if you say, I love God, but you hate your brother, you are a liar. <laughs> How can you love God who you can't see? How can you do that if you can't love your brother who you can see and who reflects God on the earth? The image of God is, is in that Hispanic, in that Latino person. The image of God is in the, the, the sound of the Asian. The image of God is in the cultural expression of the African. The image of God is in the cultural expression of the indigenous person. Do you hear, do you hear me? Empowered rejection, empowered rejection of Jesus in the skin and the cultural expression of every nation or ethnos is what racism actually is. It's, it's, when I say empowered, I mean you use authority to further the, hate, the, the hatred of Jesus that exists in a person, place, or people group. So injustice is the act of violating Jesus and rejecting his leadership through any ideas and actions that defile, defile his creation. In other words, we violate Jesus and we reject his leadership every time we commit an injustice. Every time we host, further, or entertain, develop, or teach a thought that is in alignment with the nature of God, we defile Jesus. So like, if you call me, uh, uh, if you call me a nigger, um, you're not calling me that. You're calling Jesus that. That's why he says, if they reject you, remember they rejected me first. If the world hates you, remember they hated me first. It's me they actually hate. It's me inside of you. Oh, they don't like your swag. They don't like the way you sing, the way you talk, the way you dress. Don't worry about it. That's me that they're rejecting. Truly, I tell you, Matthew 25, as you have done to the least of these, so also have you done to me. Do you know every racist thought will have a day before the judgment seat of Christ? Proverbs 14 says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a violation or a reproach to any people. 
So, so, so what is racism? And a three-letter word, sin. It's just a violation against God. So, if somebody says, well, I'm not racist, I've never been racist, and there is no racism. I've had pastors say, JT, I feel like you're building your organization off of, some, off of a false construct. Racism doesn't exist. You're buying into the narrative. You're, just, you're no different from Sharpton and Jackson and all these other guys, race baiters. There's no sin or there's no racism. And I said, well, pastor, let me just ask you one thing. Does sin still exist? Well, of course sin exists. Oh. If racism did exist, would it be a sin? Oh. <laughs> are, we without sin? are we fully without sin yet? Are we fully without racism then? Are we fully without racism? We're being perfected in the love of God. So, racism is a violation of the image of God within man. Historic violations of the image of God, or what in theological terms we call the Mago Dei, historic violations of the Imago Dei produce these things among many others. One is a spiritual breach. Everybody say spiritual breach. Two, demonic possession. Say demonic possession. Three, pathologies of oppression. Now, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Four, transgenerational wounding. Five, enculturated pain. Six, post-traumatic stress. I'm going to address, we'd be here for the next eight hours if I addressed every single one of these. No joke. But I'm going to talk about a couple of these. But I'll define, a pathology of oppression means the neuropathways in your mind, the, the ways of thinking, your worldview, even your actions and, and uh kind of ways you've been trained, there is, there is no one who has not been impacted by the fall of humanity, by Adam and Eve's trespass. There is no people group on the earth that has not experienced trauma from the fall of humanity and the fall of creation. The African-American community is not unique. There is no nation on earth where there has not been tragedy because of the spirit of the Antichrist and hatred for the image of God. And so we all are carrying trauma, whether you're white, brown, yellow, red, it does not matter. We're all living in the trauma of human history, the inertia of what has happened. And so we have these neuropathways that have formed the way we think. And all of us, you know, if you were to say who are the oppressed, we can say who are the marginalized. But if you, in Jesus' sight, who is the oppressed? All of us. 
If I say I can't base your I can't measure your oppression on your bank account because I know people who make and survive off of $100 a month. And I know people who make $100,000 a week. And what's crazy is I'll leave the hood or I'll leave another nation where I've been, where, you know, I'll, I'll go to another nation, land and go have dinner at the, the house with the person who makes $100,000 a week. And they got more issues than the person that makes $100 a month. So what I'm trying to say is, from an objective, now we can drill down, but from an objective biblical standpoint in the sight of heaven, we are the oppressed. But there are people groups in the earth that have experienced very clear and specific systemic and structural, intentional, strategic, empowered resistance to their existence. Does that make sense? Strategic, legislative, judicial, structural resistance to their existence. And some of those people have experienced it in every nation that they've ever existed in. So what that creates is transgenerational wounding. Meaning the wounds that one generation experienced get passed down to the next generation and to the next generation. There's even studies now about what's something called epigenetics, where it's like your DNA remembers. Like my, my great, 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 great trauma is embedded in, in the DNA, at the DNA level. And so it gets passed down in the genes inside of me that I, that I received from that ancestor respond to triggers in the present that are connected to trauma from the past. What the Bible would call that is a generational curse. That's why when I saw the, the Floyd video, there was like, and I'm a, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a balanced guy. I try to be. Maybe I'm not balanced. I'm probably totally off my rocker. But <laughs> the point is, there was a moment when I saw that video that I felt, a, I felt a grief. It touched my epigenetic level. Like there was something on the inside of me that I had no control over that responded and reacted to what I saw. And I love Jesus. I'm filled with, filled with Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit. And it was hard for me to control my emotions for about 24 hours. I wanted to go hurt somebody. So I'm going, if I felt like that, imagine somebody who's, anyway. <laughs> Enculturated pain, I'm not going to talk about it, but it's there, and then post-traumatic stress. We are dealing with historic post-traumatic stress that has never been healed. It's never been healed. Nationally, America has never entered any, into any comprehensive uh, process to heal the unique post-traumatic stress from what is in the soil of this nation. Other nations have, I'm getting ahead of myself, and that might be good simply because we might not get to this later, and I hope we do. Other nations like South Africa, Rwanda experienced a genocide, between, a war between the, the uh, Tutsis and the Hutus 
Over a million Rwandans were killed in a false race war. It was a false race. <laughs> They're all the same ethnicity, but it was, they were separated by their socioeconomic status, and then they turned and started killing each other. Today, there's a false race war in the gang life. I got my start in gang intervention, and it's half the time it's people who look exactly like each other, grew up in the exact same socioeconomic status, but now I pledge allegiance to, to this, this block, and I wear this color, and you grew up on that block right next to me between that cross section and that street, and now you wear a different color, and now we're at war with each other, we're gonna kill each other. Satan is not creative, he does the same thing over and over and just magnifies it. So it's not even a color thing. And where that blood gets shed, blood has a voice. Everybody say blood. Has a voice. In Genesis 4, and the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know. How are you going to lie to God? That's crazy. And the Lord said to Cain, you know he was demonic. Had the nerve to lie right to, to God's face. Where is your brother? I don't know. Am I, brother, am I my brother's keeper? I, I just, sorry. I got to pause and re react to this. I couldn't even halfway look to my dad. I couldn't look at my dad like I thought I was mad. He'd be like, boy, get that thought off your face. I will slap you happy, boy. How are he going to talk back to God? I don't know. I don't know where Abel is. Am I his keeper? You know God is patient. I would have I dropped that dude dead right there. You're not going to talk back to me like that. And the Lord says, what have you done, replied the Lord. The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. I can hear Abel's blood. I know what you did with Abel. Abel's blood is saying, I was unjustly killed. God, Father, do something about this. The original cry for justice. Blood has a voice. The blood still speaks. So every place, every place where bloodshed happens, particularly unjust blood, that blood that's in the ground actually speaks and calls out for justice. So if you ride through any hood in America, You'll see these types of things, trees with teddy bears or flowers, memorials. And these are indications of where people were killed, where blood has been spilled and where blood is in the ground. Oftentimes people will visit these places and bring new gifts to pay homage. You know, in the hood, you take a 40 and pour out a libation. That's what the Bible in the Old Testament would call a drink offering. Just pour one out for the homies. It's an altar. This one on the right is from downtown Seattle when someone was killed when the chop zone was there, or the Chaz. Is it Chaz or Chop? Yeah. Chaz. You have both. Y'all crazy. <laughs> Somebody was killed, and they, what, what did they do? Light a candle, drink offerings, 40s. 
libations, bring an offering. What are altars for? What? Altars are for? Say that again. You got it right. Altars are for? Who are they worshiping? Who are they worshiping at these altars where, the, where blood has been spilled? See, there are altars of pain and altars of presence. Our war is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. Every city in America and every city in every nation has altars. Altars get built in tribal villages, in homes, in Asia, in Vanuatu, India, where they worship over 50 million gods with a lowercase g. Are these false? Are these just fake gods? Or are they actual spiritual beings? I have friends. I have a friend right now, actually a young lady that I disciple who was in my youth group when I was a youth pastor, fire, fiery on fire for God. But she disappeared one day because she found a boyfriend. And he was Hindu, so she converted to Hinduism, lived with him for the last six years, called me probably a year ago saying she wanted out. But she said her boyfriend's sister gets possessed by a snake, and it talks to her, the spirit that they have built an altar to in her boyfriend's home. And it prophesies over her, and it has power over her. And it said that if she left him, she would die within 24 hours. And let's just say, um, we did some things, we rescued her out of it, and... Um, Within 24 hours, crazy stuff started happening. Boils breaking out on her skin, demonic dreams, uh, hospitalizations, like crazy stuff. And we had to surround people to pray over her. She uh, rededicated to her life. I baptized her in my swimming pool, and it seemed like, wow, okay, things are, she's breaking through this. And then suddenly they showed up, her sister, her boyfriend's sister showed up at her house, and um, that spirit that had a strong hold on her came right back in and seven times worse. She moved back in with him. We didn't hear from her. She changed her number, blocked me and everybody who loves her off from her social media. And all we could do is pray, God, you, you love her. You know her. You can rescue her. And then um, just within the last three months, she, she called me again at like, in the middle of the night, I've got to get out. The Lord, the Lord, I saw the Lord in a dream. And he said to me, this is your last chance. I want out. I want free. We swept into action, got her, moved out, got her. You know, long story short, she's doing amazing. She's doing amazing right now. What does that have to do with this? What I'm trying to tell you is, the spiritual world, 
Like in Africa, Asia, other parts of the world, we don't have to like, I don't have to even do a, a teaching about this because it's like known, of course. But here in the West, we live as if what we can see is more real than what we can't see. We got seminaries debating whether or not uh, demons exist and whether or not God still heals today. I'm like, if you're a professor, a PhD, and you're debating that, bro, <laughs> go live in Africa. Better yet, don't even do that. Come with me on the streets of the hood for one day. Because you'll, you'll see demons. And if you don't deal with them, and if you don't hear God's voice, you'll die. Because they'll, they'll kill you. They'll murk you, as they say. I mean, I've had to learn how to hear God's voice to stay alive. So part of the problem with those debates are just people who are in their religious little offices, and they're not even doing the gospel of the kingdom. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just stating it like it is. Can I tell it like it is? So we're trying to address justice issues dealing with the spirit of the Antichrist and a spirit of murder from an intellectual, theological, cerebral place without the power of God. Then we wonder why we've had all these movements and all this legislative change and we still got demons killing folk in the street. And do you know, you can Google this. Please Google it. Fact check me. There is not a city in America that has not experienced a homicidal violent increase since 2020. Do you know every city in America that experienced riots and protests has had more homicides than they had before 2020? Did you know that? Did anybody know that? You know why? Because a spirit of rage was released on our nation. And murder begins at the heart level. Now, what does that have to do with the altars of pain? Because every place where innocent blood has been shed, that blood cries out for justice. And if the church is not the loudest voice bringing justice to that blood, what is justice? What is justice? So where blood is crying out, there is a blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So we're supposed to show up at the altar of pain and say, Father, we repent for this blood that's been shed right here. And we take authority over this and we say, cleanse the land. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal the do you understand? You don't understand. This is real. This isn't just the, this is, no, the land is sick because there is blood that has defiled it. And the culture is creating altars that mark where the defilement is so we can clearly see it. But if the church does not bring justice by bringing Jesus to the land, then the rocks will cry out. So what happens is people with hard hearts raise their voices in the only way they know how. Mm -hmm. 
Every place where there's an altar of pain, if you've ever been in the occult, anybody been delivered from the occult that's not afraid to say it? If you, if you, the occult world understands, if you ever watch movies about occult stuff where there's human sacrifice, in the spiritual world, power is transferred through covenants. You make a covenant. Like if, if, if a king of one kingdom and a king of another kingdom want to, to, to forge economic power, they say, well, who, what son or daughter can I give to marry this king so that our, our kingdoms can be joined together in covenant? There's a marriage that has to take place. How many of you, when you were kids, you didn't know what you were doing, but you had a, a blood brother or a blood sister, meaning like a buddy that you would like cut yourself and they cut yourself and then you shake hands. It's like, all right, we mix blood. We're, we're, we're brothers now. That comes from the reality that there has to be bloodshed to make covenant. In fact, you're supposed to wait till you're married to get to, to have intercourse. Now, it's very rare for somebody to, to, to do that these days. But the truth of the matter is, technically, the first time a woman is penetrated, her hymen breaks and blood comes out. And that was supposed to that blood is supposed to fall on your husband. I know I'm being graphic, but it is what it is. That's a covenant. That's two spirits being joined together. Blood, fluid is exchanged. So what happens is it takes blood to empower the spiritual realm, the demonic realm. Demons require blood. Native peoples and indigenous peoples and tribal peoples around the world understand this. That's why they bring goats and animals and kill them to offer them to their demigods, their demonic gods, and their ancestral spirits. This, is, this, is, this sounds like me. This should actually be Christianity 101. But instead, we're, we're arguing about Calvinism and Armenianism. I had a friend of mine who's a missionary in Africa. He said, Africa, he says, um, America produces theologians, but Africa produces martyrs. And which one does it say the church is built on? The blood of the martyrs. Asia, China is producing martyrs. India is producing martyrs. I'm here to tell you, this is not to, to just throw down the Western church, but I'm going to throw it down anyway. We are so immature. We got a lot, of learn, a lot to learn from our <laughs> brown and beige and black brothers and sisters all over the world. But we're the largest mission-sending nation in the world, so we feel like we really got it together. Meanwhile, our streets are filled with blood. So, say JT. That makes me feel great. <laughs> so, where there's an altar of pain, there are demonic spirits attached to it. So, we need altars of presence. Everybody say presence. Turning the altar of pain, breaking and severing the covenant that was made through whatever blood sacrifice happened there, 
a life that was sacrificed to Baal, to Molech, whatever the entity is, through whatever lifestyle the person was living or not living, who was justly or, or who was unjustly killed, whoever lost their life, what happens is the occult world comes and makes their sacrifices because they don't, like witches and warlocks will come to places where there's been an unjust ki killing. They will. I've run into them a lot. And they will go, we don't want to waste this blood sac human sacrifice. We can make covenant with our demon right now to accomplish something, to advance an agenda. So like, oh, we want to move forward this ideological agenda. Everybody show up in Ferguson and let's cut covenant with our spirit to ask that this sacrifice would change America in this way and give us this kind of power. I'm revealing secrets to y'all that's probably wait. I'm just telling you, I, I'm telling you from experience, I ain't making this up. I'm not smart enough. I'm not smart enough. So what happens when the church shows up and brings the justice of Jesus? Numbers 35 says, do not pollute the land where you are. Bloodshed pollutes the land, and atonement cannot be made for the land on which blood has been shed, except by the blood of the one who shed it. Do not defile the land where you live and where I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell among the Israelites. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Destroy all their engraved stones, destroy all their molded images, and demolish all their high places. And a high place is also considered an altar. Destroy it and destroy their molded images. Well, guess what? We have molded images all over America. At altars. Places where blood has been shed. That memorialize forever what happened in those places. And this one is in Nashville. This is Nathan Bedford Forrest the Confederate general who started the Ku Klux Klan. This is in between Nashville and Franklin, Tennessee, where I used to live, where I started my ministry. And every day on the major highway, 65 South, you had to pass this monument, massive monument that you can see for miles on the highway with Confederate flags all around it and the Tennessee flag. It was on private land and a multimillionaire built it. It was on his land so nobody could do anything about it. And people would come and tear it down. And he was a multi-multi-multi-millionaire. So he'd just get it rebuilt over and over and over again for 30, 40 years. If you look at the face on the statue, look at that. Does that look like a godly, righteous man? It looks like a demon-possessed madman. That's an altar or a high place. And we wage war not against power flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. There is a demonic spiritual ruler of wickedness that said, I'm going to, because demons can't incarnate themselves. They can't just, we're, we have Halloween in like two days, which by the way, we want the death problem in America to turn around. And yet we're embracing every year a time where we, we love to embrace demons and the demonic. Well, you're just being too spiritual, JT. I am the one that has to do funerals of people who are demon, who, who, who have been killed by demon-possessed people. You see what I'm trying to say? Like, this, is, this is not a game for me. This is my life. This is what I live. 
I'm actually casting demons out. I ain't got time to go to the movies and, and pay to see one or to dress my kid up like one and bring it into my house. But anyway, that's on you. Um, this guy right here, this is an altar. And he says, tear down the molded images in the altars. So in Charlottesville in 2017, there was a, 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 a debate over a Robert E. Lee statue. Well, should you tear them down? Should you do this and do that? And so there was a protest. And guess what? All the energy is around this graven image. And so a demon-possessed madman drives through the crowd and runs over Heather Heyer, killing her. More bloodshed at the altar of sacrifice. Do you know that wouldn't have happened if it had been a crowd of Christians there? Instead of us watching it from a distance in our safe bubbles, what if we were the first responders who showed up there and said, you know what? There's a raging national debate about the flag and about confederacy and monuments. Let's just go to this pressure point in this city and let's worship and pray until something changes. Um, By the way, this did come down last summer. It's an amazing story. I'll tell you sometime. Maybe not. Um, why did Ferguson, where I live, happen? We have to be students of history to be a people that God uses to transform. In 1820, Missouri is this state right here above the yellow line. Um, a decision was made that would determine which states are free states and which states are slave states, and it divided the 3630 parallel. It, it divided the nation in half and across the Louisiana Purchase Territory. Um, it became a dividing line and a compromise, a temporary compromise, because the leaders of the nation knew that if they had to do something or else America was going to go to civil war. Well, it bought them 40 more years, um, almost. But Thomas Jefferson in St. Louis, where I live, where Mike Brown was killed, which opened up America's new era of racial reckoning and healing, or lack of healing, rather. Um, the compromise happened on the banks of the Mississippi in St. Louis. My city is the seat of iniquity. If, if there was like, if you understand the Washington DC is like the capital city of the US government and then in every state there's a capital and certain states have certain histories that represent certain realities in our nation. Our city in the spirit is the seat of government for racism and injustice in America. It's like the capital city in the spiritual realm. That means in our city, we have the most demons <laughs> when it comes to racism. Like the most spiritual, it's a spiritual capital, which is why Missouri is where Ferguson happened. And Jefferson said this in April 22, April 22nd, 20, 1820, but this momentous question, the question of whether or not slavery should exist, like a fire bell in the night awakened and filled me with terror, I considered it as once as the nail of the union. In other words, our nation will be split over this question. 
It is hushed indeed for the moment, but this is a reprieve only, not a final sentence. A geographical line coinciding with the Mark principle, moral and political, once conceived and held up to the angry passions of men, will never be obliterated. Every new irritation will mark it deeper and deeper. Do you hear what I'm saying? Thomas Jefferson said, we're drawing a line in the sand right now to determine we're not, we're not saying slavery is over. We're just saying above this line, you can have slaves below this or below this line, you can have slaves and above it, you can't. That's not good enough. We're only creating more division by drawing this line. And it's going to get a, become a deeper divide with every generation. And he goes on to say, my only, he says, he says, uh, my only consolation is that I won't be alive when, when God judges America for it. That's what he basically said. He says, my only, my, Thomas Jefferson prophetically sees this is out of alignment with, with the nature of God. This is a violation of the Imago Dei, and we're going to pay for this. But thank God I'm old and I won't be around for it. So in 1857, in my city, a former uh, for, uh, a freed slave named Dred Scott left with his uh, former slave master, John Emerson, captain. He was a U.S. Army captain. They lived in Wisconsin and Illinois, which were both free states. It was above that line. And then John Emerson got killed in battle, and um, his wife, Eliza, had to come back to St. Louis, where she was from, and since he was, uh, Captain Emerson was dead, Dred Scott and his wife Harriet came back to help Eliza. Well, she was um, suffering for money, and Missouri was a slave state. They had been free, but when they get back, Eliza needed money. So she says, well, Dred and Harriet, I love you, but I'm going to have to rent you out to make money to support myself. And they said, well, you can't rent us out. We're not slaves anymore. Your husband gave us our manumission papers. We're free. She says, yeah, well, you should have stayed in Wisconsin or Illinois because when you crossed back over into Missouri, you became a slave again. And they said, no, we didn't. We're free. We have our papers. She says, well, sue me. So they said, okay, we will. So they sued, and it made it to the Missouri Supreme Court. The Missouri Supreme Court ruled in her favor and said, you know what? Um, no, you're right. They are slaves. So then they challenged it, and it went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And in 1857, the Supreme Court said, bottom line, the question before us, whether the class of persons described in the plea in the abatement compose a portion of this people and are constituent members of this sovereignty. They said the question here <clears throat> is whether or not Africans and people of African descent are actually members of society. We think they are not and that they are not included and were never intended to be included under the word citizens in the Constitution. And therefore, they can claim none of the rights and privileges which that instrument provides for and secures to citizens of the United States. In other words, you could have been born here. You, you, you even built the capital in the courtroom that we're making this decision in. Your ancestors did. But you are not citizens of the United States because when it says citizens in the U.S. Constitution, it never included you. It went on and say you are actually closer to, uh, to animals than humans. That decision set the precedent for all, every Supreme Court decision sets legal precedence. That set precedence for other decisions 
<clears throat> that informed all of the, the problems that we face today, from housing and redlining to um, predatory lending practices. I mean, you name it, the bottom line decision for the U.S. Supreme Court, that precedent that said people not only of African descent, but basically people of color of any kind are not actually human. Now, the 1896 Dred Plessy versus Ferguson decision overturned this and said, okay, you are human 40 years later. You are human, but you have to remain separate. So that was separate but equal, which then set the precedent for the Jim Crow laws of the South, where you have white signs and colored signs and you can't live in the same communities. That got overturned in 1954 by the U.S. Uh, Brown versus Board of Education decision. Mike Brown, you have Ferguson, Missouri, 1896, Plessy Ferguson. You have Mike Brown, Brown versus Board of Education. You have, um, you have all these things that tie to what happened in Ferguson, including the fact that up there where it says Canfield Drive, that's where Mike Brown was killed. And where you see that blue line, that whole street is where most of the rioting and the civil unrest took place in Ferguson, Missouri. If you were to Google Ferguson and, and click on images, you'd see buildings burning and all that kind of stuff. The same things you, everybody saw in 2020, but this is six years before that. If you were to look, that street is where all the rioting happening. And at the end of that street is a cemetery. And in that cemetery, guess who's buried? Dred Scott. Injustice in the ground, crying out. This was the police response on that street, and that's what gave birth. It was in Ferguson that the whole world for the first time saw the hashtag Black Lives Matter. I don't have time to go into Black Lives Matter, what it is, what it isn't, what's right, what's wrong. All I'm trying to tell you is the hashtag emerged for the first time, and it actually for the first time was a, two years earlier during the Trayvon Martin but it started getting widespread usage and people started protesting in the name of Black Lives Matter in Ferguson. At that time, Black BLM was not a political party, political, uh, had no political position paper. It was just random. Somebody's like, ooh, hashtag Black Lives Matter. Then it's like, oh yeah, that's a great hashtag, Black Lives Matter. And, and people, you could go and, you know, sell cotton candy in the name of BLM, or burn something down in the name of BLM. There was no structure, there's no, so it is what it is, but because it was not rooted from the jump in the fear of the Lord, intersectionality happens and all this, and it can just become whatever. So, but it, it was a response to the U.S. Supreme Court saying a black life is not a life worth anything at all hundreds of years ago and that was crying out in the ground do you see what I'm trying to say do you hear what I'm trying to say you don't have to agree but you might know more than me but all I'm just trying to say is this is what I've discovered through this process inequity has produced multiple civil rights movements but iniquity requires civil righteousness movements. The Ku Klux Klan is an example of a self-righteousness, a pharisaical righteousness that terrorized 
this country. These are images from downtown Seattle on March 23rd, 1923. There were 20,000 to 70,000 members of the Ku Klux Klan in Washington State. Washington State had one of the largest and strongest clans. If you, see, you, if you can see here where it says Watcher on the Tower, which is their, was their publication back then, the Bible says, see, I've set watchmen on your walls, old Jerusalem. So they fought, they, they considered themselves righteous. They were a righteous organization watching and defending the land against this present darkness called multiculturalism. <laughs> we got to preserve the Christian race. And it says, if you can read it, it says the clan, there's three pillars, the clan not the C-L-A-N, like family, but the K-L-A-N, a different family. The Constitution, not with a C, but with a K. And the cross, not with a C, but with a K. This is a false gospel. It's a false family, a false constitution, and a false cross in the name of Jesus. Do you know that Presbyterian pastors started this? With Nathan Bedford Forrest. This is the, the, Nathan Bedford Forrest started the first one. It's called the first clan. Then there was the second clan, which was started on Stone Mountain, Georgia, by a group of pastors who got together and prayed and felt like the clan dressed in white like clergy with a cross that you set on fire to illuminate, to exalt and illuminate light over darkness. So they would run through the South, and they would burn the cross, reading scriptures in a demonic frenzy, and find the first black person they see, and hang them on a tree with the cross burning in the back. This is what happened all over America, and in many cities, including downtown Seattle. They sacrificed unto some demonic spirit 100 years ago. Not even 100 years yet. The question is, if that many people in Seattle were in the Klan and gathered downtown Seattle and sacrificed and built an altar to a false god in downtown Seattle, has the Church of Seattle ever gone down there to repent and to undo the covenant that was made and to release Seattle from the, from the hands of whatever demonic entity which is still alive even if the people are dead? If that many people, are there any natives of Seattle who still live here whose family members happen to be at that? Or did they all move out? And there's no descendants of clan members in Seattle. See, this is what a reckoning with our history does. So how do we turn the altar of pain into an altar of presence? I'm not going to read through this whole thing, but it's an amazing story. Gideon um, is told, the Lord says, the Lord appears to him and says, Gideon, you are mighty. You're a mighty man of valor. And he says, I'm with you. And he says, Gideon is despondent. He says, oh, Lord, in verse 13, if you're with us, why has all this happened to us? Why, why are all... The miracles which our fathers told about saying, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt, but now you've forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. That's how so many people feel. They're like, man, 
This is all bad news, JT. I thought you said this, we would get to some good news. I, how are we going to, if God brought the slaves out and the Jews out, like, how do we get out of this? The Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and you will save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? He says, how can I save Israel? My clan, with a C, not a K, is the weakest and I'm the least in my father's house. He says, surely I'll be with you. You'll defeat the Midianites as one man. Everybody say one man. man. Do you know the Midianites in our nation, in this generation, God has said, I want to give you victory over Midian through one man, Jesus. And that man came to create a new man, which is Jew and Gentile. It's neither Jew nor Gentile. It's neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. It's one. It's one church and one body. God wants to release the grace of oneness on us. If I found favor in your sight, show me a sign that it's you who talked to me. At first, I didn't understand that. I'm like, it says the angel of the Lord appeared to him. You mean you're staring an angel in the face and say, I need to know if this is you. (laughs) But what I've learned is that a lot of times when the angelic is activated, you're hearing but not quite seeing yet. Like something is happening, but I don't know who's speaking with me. And the Lord, um, Gideon perceived eventually that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon says, alas, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said, peace with you. Don't be afraid. You will not die. So what did Gideon do? The place where Gideon had an encounter with the Lord, he built an altar to the Lord there and called it the Lord is peace. So we today can go and build an altar to the Lord in the place where there's bad news. We just have to see his face and remember what he says and memorialize it and walk in the authority of what God has told us to do. Um, God's controversy, you've had, you understand that God has a controversy. I feel like I've laid that out pretty well. But this talks about there being a breach in the wall. Because you have rejected this message, trusting in oppression and relying on deceit, this iniquity, everybody say iniquity, is like a breach or a gap in the wall that's about to fail. A high wall whose collapse will suddenly come. In eight minutes, I'm going to do this. Watch. He says, I looked for a man. In verse 30 of Ezekiel 20, so I sought for a man among them who would make up a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not have to destroy it. Isaiah 53 says Jesus was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. A transgression is external. It's what we do to each other, or that's what an injustice is. An iniquity is your thoughts. It's internal. And so Jesus' justice agenda begins with internal transformation that leads to external reformation. Do you hear what I'm saying? Transgression, what I do, I trespass against you. Iniquity, what I think about you. God says, I've come, I was wounded to change your externals and bruised, again, the the internal, to change your internals. And uh, 
He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. Jesus reconciled heaven and earth, God and man. And he has provided a way for us to be reconciled to each other. And now he's passed the baton of reconciliation to you and me. Now, everybody give God a hand clap of praise. (laughs) We have six minutes left. I want you guys to know, you're getting what I normally teach over the course of seven days. I'm just giving you a preview. (laughs) You're getting what normally takes me about seven days, three hours a day to really break down. So lock in with me for about six more minutes. If you don't get anything else, get this. No other entity on the earth has the authority to reconcile but the church. We are the only ones that have been given power over the enemy. I just talked about the enemy, but you need to understand now who you are. Somebody say, who am I? You are a holy nation, ethnos, a holy people, a royal priesthood. That's kingly authority. God has actually called us to be the ones who reconcile and who bring shalom or peace where there is no peace. Matthew 5 says, for blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God. So God sends us into the world to make peace where there is no peace. How do we do that? Well, God gave us a strategy. You can see the teddy bears. We go to the altars of pain and we pray. God gave us a strategy called the wall. I look for a man who would build up a wall and stand in the gap. That's where Mike Brown was killed. God gave us a strategy to get people who were black, white, Asian, Hispanic, as diverse as we could, and to stand there every day. And we weren't there to protest to get man's attention. We were there to protest before heaven and pray and say, God, have mercy and get God's attention, which in turn started to get man's attention. This is what it looks like. People would take a piece of tape. White represents purity. Sometimes we can be unified until we start talking. And our mouths get us in trouble. It's like, I like you until you said something. (laughs) So we say, God, cleanse our lips. Purify our speech. We forgive us for the pointing of the finger. So we put white tape on our mouths, and we write on our mouths what we're praying for. If you're praying for unity, peace, healing, love, mercy, justice, whatever it is, And we'll stand a white person next to a brown person, next to a black person, next to a white person, next to a brown. And people drive by and they're like, what is that? What kind of protest is that? Especially in cities where it's all going down. People are like, oh, this is a new protest. It's really silent. (laughs) But, you know, in the silence, there's a supernatural peace that falls. And I kid you not, you will not know. I believe peacemaking is a supernatural grace. It, the prince of peace, there's a government that comes, so much so that the police started putting us on their frequencies and said, because they were like, wherever those people are, everything changes. And where real peace is, glory can come. Now, I'm not saying we don't raise our voices. You see, I'm loud and I'm confrontational. So it's part, I, I inherited some of that. My aunt Nina was very confrontational. And my dad was 
even more confrontational. So I have that side of me. And my tendency in the natural is if something's wrong, oh, I'm going to let you know. I ain't a fr- I'm not here to win friends and influence people. Like we can go blow for blow. That's, that's my nature. So, it's, it's, so for me to be the guy that says, oh, there's something wrong, let's be still and know that he is the Lord first. See, our first response has to be be still and get God's idea. Get his strategy. Lord, what are you doing? What do, what do you want me to do? What are you saying? How, we, can't, we can't make change in the midst of chaos just because it's like a knee-jerk reaction. We need to slow down and get God's mind on some things. And so we show up and change the atmosphere. And I'm kidding you. I, I'm not kidding you. We have had whole cities literally come under the authority of the presence of God while we were doing these things. We've done extended watches like this, and the police were like, we didn't get any calls the entire time that was going on, and the moment you stopped, it went nuts. Blessed are the peacemakers. So, um, we went, this is in Minneapolis, where this was like four days, five days after uh, the Floyd video went viral. And it was going down in Minneapolis. And God gave us access to the Floyd Memorial site. And we did that tape thing. We call it the wall. I just got on a, a pastor whose um, church is right there where it happened. He said, you can do whatever you want. So we built a little wooden platform. And we said, at 5 o'clock p.m., we're having an hour of silence for George Floyd. We, that's what we said. That's, we called it. You know, there was Muslims. Atheists, agnostics, everybody there. So we just said, we're having one hour of silence from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. for George Floyd. And during that hour, this is the action that we're doing. We're taking white tape, and you can put whatever you hope for on that tape and join us. Put it there, and let's stand in solidarity together. Like, you got to speak the language of the streets. I said, let's stand. I said, the police didn't hear George Floyd, but heaven did. And so now we're going to stand in silence. Oh, and by the way, I am a pastor, and I'm going to be praying, and I know that we're a pluralistic society, and you may not even be, have any faith at all that you know of, but we're going to be praying, and you can join us and pray. We're going to be praying in the name of Jesus. And I was like, so feel free to join us or not. Do you know when 5 o'clock came, there was music and different things going on around there because there were vendors out there. All the vendors shut their stuff down. We had no permit. This was organized within like an hour. Everything shut down, and 5,000 people stood there in silence for an hour. And as they were standing there, I mean, all the news cameras were out there. You could hear a pin drop. People were starting to cry like there was just this, this like a reverence. And then me and a friend got up, a friend of mine from Youth with a Mission, He got up after the hour and broke the silence with the Lord's Prayer and then shared his testimony. And do you know, I kid you not, people started flooding. I mean, everybody stayed, but people all over the place were weeping and and flooding. Like like we, we said, if you want to to, to know the peace of Jesus, just raise your hand, and hands went up all over the place. 
<laughs> we didn't have enough people to minister. I mean, it was crazy. I don't know how many people gave their lives to Jesus, but the, uh, that evening, the pastor was like, well, we have a portable baptismal pool. Why don't you put that out there? So we put it out there, and for the next 30 days, they started baptizing people. Now, that, that started making the news. Um, we, we, we were the first there, but because the stage was built and the baptismal were there, other groups started hearing about it, and they were like, oh, we want to go do that too. So suddenly, you know, one well-known uh, person came like a, a week or two later, um, uh, a worship leader out of California named Sean Ford. He came and just, you know, the platform was there, and so he did it. And then when he did it, it went all over on like Rolling Stone, white guys co-opting the pain of the black community and da-da-da-da-da. And like it turned into this crazy political stuff. But the point is, in the midst of the heartbreak, there was an opening for the Prince of Peace. Do you see what I'm trying to say? Like the point is, we have to bring Jesus to the place of pain and turn it into an altar of presence. So we also did um, Pray on MLK where every city in America that I know of has an MLK, even like little rural towns. And in every place where there's an MLK, it's usually the socioeconomic dividing line, and it will get you to the place where the most injustice is. Now, I know about it mainly because today I'm dishonoring my father, who is my, my, my dad, who's in heaven now, because his whole deal was like, son, you got to be sharp. You can't stand up on a stage with ashy hands and in need of a haircut. <laughs> in other words, whenever I need to, to speak somewhere, he's like, you got to get a haircut. So every city I go to, I get a haircut if I can before I go. And uh, I learned if I want to find the black barbers, find Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. That's where they're going to be. Or somewhere, some street off of it, you know what I mean? And uh, so they re the, these streets represent the places of pain, pressure, and division in our cities. Um, so God uh, allowed us to start an initiative um, where we, we're every year calling the church to pray on MLK. And the, the goal is not just for your prayer to stop there, but when you get present and get your feet on the ground, you see the need. You get proximate. And there could be no justice without proximity. Um, so it starts with prayer because that's the place of agreement. Um, I know we're four minutes over. I'm going to land here. America has never had a U.S. Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Other nations have, where we enter into an intentional, strategic, comprehensive, national dialogue and process over many years, seven, eight years, where we're looking to discover the truth and find several things. One, agreement through confession and acknowledgement. And there's a whole process that um, I was supposed to have taken you through like an hour ago. <laughs> and then our last session was we were going to actually practice this so that you know what this looks like. But the bottom line is this. The Bible says in Psalm 23, 5, you prepare a table for me. Where? No, we know that our enemies are really not flesh and blood, but the enemy manifests through flesh and blood. And our prayer, our justice can't just stop with prayer. It has to start with prayer. But from there, 
God wants to give us, would you stand up with me? God wants to give us um, strategies. The historic civil rights movement was led by the church. And the strategies for doing justice and changing our culture came from a praying people who were unified. I believe that God wants to release a new civil rights, civil righteousness reality through us, through you and I. And he, I believe there are educators probably in this room, lawyers, maybe politicians, whatever sphere of society you're called to, then you have a responsibility to bring the presence of God, to act justly, to walk humbly, and to love mercy. And so I believe that God wants to launch a national truth and reconciliation process by all of us being willing to partner with him in creating tables. And at the table, that's where miracles can happen, where mediation, reconciliation, and innovation can happen. We have to be at the table to say, who can we be together that we've never been? And what can we then go, what can we do together that we cannot do apart? Does that make sense? Oftentimes we implement first, implement legislation, policy, but we haven't done the deep psychological, spiritual, and emotional work first. So now we need to step back and enter into a spiritual, psychological, and emotional, mental health process that then can get us to the table of innovation with a sound mind and a healed heart. So I want to challenge and invite Sunset Community Church to lead out in truth and reconciliation in Renton, Washington. Don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers. If you heard anything, you may have heard my voice a lot and fall, falling asleep. But if there's anything that landed in you today, then you actually have a responsibility before God to do something with what you know and what you gained. So I just want to pray. Father, would you raise up a people in this room that are reconciled fully. Lord, where there are woundings, I ask for healing. God, where there's been um, challenges, God, even things that you may have highlighted at various moments during our morning together, Father, I pray that you would set your seal of love on every person in this room. God, I, I thank you for divine protection for them. I thank you, God, for giving us the mind of Christ. I'm asking, God, that you would move us into greater measures of your love. I pray that when you look upon Seattle, you would find a people with faith, and a people with courage to pursue justice your way. And I ask God that in this place you would do the miracle of the mystery of, of oneness. God, I pray that you would raise up a unified bride in this city. God, I ask that everything that was a barrier in the past, God, every wall that's been erected by uh, systems and structures that can only fail, by false paradigms, God, I'm asking now, 
Lord, that you would strip away even things that have been empowered by spiritual darkness. And I just declare, let there be light in Jesus' name. God, I thank you for blessing every single person here today, Lord, with grace and truth. Now, Father, release your peace, and may they walk as those who beautify the earth with beautiful feet. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more about JT's organization called Civil Righteousness, visit their website at civilrighteousness.org. And to find out more information about our church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church.